For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Yacht sales are also booming. Some billionaires are building such big yachts, they can cost over $500 million. These yachts have everything you could want and a lot you don't. Mm. One yacht had a dedicated cocaine room. I'm going to say if you have a dedicated cocaine room, every room is a dedicated cocaine room. Yeah, good point. Yeah, apparently the yacht wars are on among the super rich to have the coolest yacht out there. And if you've never been to San Diego and checked out what a yacht can be, because I didn't mm-hmm. know what a yacht really could be until I saw the ones that pull up in uh, in San Diego. The, the 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 top of the top, the best ones, have a helicopter. Yeah, they've got a freaking helicopter on their yacht. Just amazing. And usually well, they're from some foreign land. What was the one super rich guy that we he's got like a yacht on his yacht? Oh, yeah. Take him to the helicopter yeah. or something. He I can't remember. Got a bigger boat than you'll ever own in your life on top of his giant boat that takes him to wherever with a helicopter. I don't know. I don't even know how it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, please welcome back to the Armstrong and Getty Show, Tim the Lawyer Sandifer. Tim is the Vice President for Litigation with the Goldwater Institute, uh, adjunct scholar with Cato Institute, and the author of many fabulous books, including The Right to Earn a Living, The Permission Society, and Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, again, among others. Tim, how are you, sir? I, you know, man, I don't know how people are so rich. I, I, I still feel rich when I go to Red Lobster for dinner. Yeah. Oh, oh I, yeah. Know. I know. I know. I know. I, I when, I was, when I was a kid, Red Lobster was too expensive. So nowadays, you know, I feel like big fancy lawyer man when I go in there. So. Yeah, I it's a, all about expectations, my friend. Yeah, and we're and what you grew up with. Um, hey, did you watch Loki? By the way, are you? An, I know you're like a Star Trek guy. You're a Simpsons guy. Are you like a Marvel Comics guy? Did you watch Loki by any chance? 
No, I despise comic books and all comic book movies. I cannot stand them. I, I'm perfectly comfortable with that uh, that uh, emotion. I just wondered if you had seen the Simpsons version of Loki. They did like a three-minute short that is hilarious. It's on Disney. We, they are typically better than the original sources. <laughs> um, so I was reading this week how it looks like this commission is actually going to happen that the Biden administration put together to take a look at the Supreme Court and some possible changes to the Supreme Court. How many justices in you know immediately? Um, if you're uh, if you're anti Biden or anti Democrat, you immediately go to he's trying to pack the court. But there is discussion of what's the right number. It hasn't always been nine. Um, should they have term limits? Should you uh, have rotating Supreme Court justices with other federal courts? A variety of things. What do you think is the sweet spot? What would, if you were in charge and you were put in charge today of how to uh, compose the Supreme Court? What would you do? I would leave it at nine. I don't think there's any reason to change it. And I think changing it, even if you really are just changing it for non-ideological reasons, it nevertheless still opens the door for changing it for ideological reasons down Mm -hmm. the road. So I just think it's a bad idea. And And there's no reason to do it. What we really need is more. We need the Supreme Court to take more cases and we need the lower courts. We need more judges there. That that often gets ignored. How important the the uh, intermediate courts, the circuit courts of appeal, those are really really important, and people don't really pay a lot of attention to that because it, you know the Supreme Court's always on the news. To me, the oddest thing that happens with the Supreme Court is that it's just random how many justices any particular president uh, or administration is going to appoint, and then it has such an influence. Trump got three. Biden might end up with zero in his first term. Is, is is that are you okay with the randomness of that? Although uh, although yeah. and, and to throw it one caveat, they regularly don't end up voting the way whatever president thought they were going to vote. Exactly, and that's that's crucial because the whole idea of the separation of powers and, and an independent judiciary is that these are questions that are supposed to be answered based on principles instead of political expediency. That's why we have lifetime tenure, so that the judges are not going to be swayed by temporary political arguments. And when you boil it down, all these arguments about expanding the court and changing it are all about politics by people who don't accept the fact that there are right and wrong answers in the law. This isn't just a thing about popularity. There are things that are constitutional, even though you think they're bad ideas, and there are things that are unconstitutional, even though you think they're good ideas, and the judges are there to tell us. Just for the sake of the argument, a 20-year term, wouldn't that have the same uh, net benefit as a lifetime appointment? Yeah, or something along those lines, like a, a, a an age limit across the board or something. People float those ideas, and I'm not totally against it. I think if people want to amend the Constitution to, to accomplish goals like that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just don't see any point to it. I, I don't think we've ever – I don't think we've had many problems with justices who stayed to the point where their minds went. I mean, there's been one or two, but it's never been a real problem like that, and so I don't, I'm not really bothered by the lifetime tenure thing. With the, the, the one of the problems with a 20-year term, of course, is then that means that when that person's term comes up, that's all anybody talks about at the presidential election. Nobody's going to talk about the other issues. So it would have effects on politics. Not necessarily saying you can't do it, but it just seems like it's unnecessary to me. So the biggest problem, and we've talked about this with you before, is that the Supreme Court has to do so much of the heavy lifting that Congress is supposed to do. And I was reading, it might have been something you wrote, but I was reading something a while back on how it used to be believed in Congress that you would not even introduce a bill 
that was unconstitutional, you would talk it over with your uh, your colleagues as to whether or not this would fly constitutionally before you'd, you'd get into the wrangling of a bill, because you swore an oath. All, everybody in Congress swears an oath to the, to the Constitution. Now Congress regularly passes things that they know might be unconstitutional, but they don't care. Oh, they don't care at all. And, and to the extent that they do care, they don't know. They don't have any real awareness of, the, of what the Constitution says or doesn't say. We all remember now, was it 10 years ago, when, when Nancy Pelosi was asked, where in the Constitution does it give the federal government to, the authority to control our health care? And her answer was, are you serious? Because she had no idea. And, and of course, that, that's uh, a, a major problem and that touches on another major problem. Everybody talks about the Supreme Court. Oh, the Supreme Court. We've got to be worried about judicial activism. Oh, the court's going out beyond its mouth. Nobody ever talks about how vastly more dangerous Congress is. Congress and the president violate your rights every single day of your life. The court... At most, what the Supreme Court can really do is step in and shut down something that you think is a good idea, really. I mean, there are certainly examples of the Supreme Court or other courts going too far and crossing the line. But by comparison to the elected branches of government, the Supreme Court is angelic by comparison. And people never pay attention to that because they think, oh, well, politics, I'll vote for what I want. No, this is a constitutional problem. These people take oaths to obey and respect the Constitution of the United States, and they typically thumb their noses at it. It's really unconscionable. Or my favorite example is President Bush signing the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act years ago, saying that it was unconstitutional. He came right out and said, this is unconstitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway, because I'm going to trust that the Supreme Court will do my work for me and strike down the unconstitutional parts. No, you take an oath to support and defend the Constitution, you have an obligation to veto a law that you think is unconstitutional. And uh, Obama had one of those, too, where he regularly said, no, I can't do this it's unconstitutional and they finally got enough pressure from his side to go ahead and do it with an executive order tim sanford is the vice president for litigation for the goldwater institute go ahead tim the obvious example of that is DACA, right? The, right. the we, I, when he came out and said, "I can't just nullify the the nation's immigration laws," and then a few months later, ah, guess what? I'm just going to sign this thing. So uh, there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about, um, but in the limited time we have, I don't know. Can you hang around for another segment, or what's your schedule sure. look like? All right. Yep. Um, well, then I have another Supreme Court question. You alluded to the fact that uh, the Supreme Court doesn't take many cases. We ought to pay more attention to the uh, the circuit courts. Uh, what percentage of circuit court uh, cases actually make their way to the Supreme Court? Oh, the U.S. Supreme Court takes r- around 80 cases a year, and there is about 8,000 cases that they're asked to take. So they wow. take a, a minuscule number of the cases that they're that they are asked to take. Now it's true, many of those are just you know some prisoner who writes out some uh, frivolous thing and sends it in the mail. But the these are a lot of these are crucial constitutional issues that the court ignores for, sometimes for decades. There's an issue that I've been trying to, to get the Supreme Court to take for 20 years or so now, and this and and the the lower courts disagree on this issue. So you have what they call circuit split, where the lower courts are actually in conflict with one another and the supreme court just ignores it is that the designated hitter <laughs> if i knew what the designated hitter rule was i would let you know <laughs> uh tim sandifer with the goldwater institute why don't we take a quick break and then come back and uh, i have so enjoyed our email conversation about socialism and george orwell and, and the problems of socialism yeah, I, it uh, wasn't lost on my t- on me tim and then in the same day you <laughs> 
text Joe some complicated Orwell versus socialism thing, but you send me an obscene Willie Nelson joke. So I, I, I see where, you know, I understand. Yeah, well, if the shoe fits. Anyway, more with uh, Tim the Lawyer Sandifer. Tim Sandifer is vice president for litigation with the Goldwater Institute, the author of many fine tomes, including... Uh, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century uh, America, which I bring up, Tim, because I want to talk a little bit about uh, economic freedom and, and central planning and government distorting markets. Uh, I mean, there have been a couple of obvious examples, whether, uh, you know, uh, protecting people who are delinquent on their rent, which you might be in favor of, you might not. Uh, to uh, subsidized housing, to, in particular, paying people lots of money to stay home, the way that's distorted the labor market. Any comments on the the enhanced unemployment benefits and the effects of it uh, it has had? No, yeah, it's a terrible a terrible circumstance that the, the government has put us in economically. Every day you drive past uh, rest, all these uh, fast food restaurants that have all these help-wanted signs out. You Businesses close because they don't have any employees. to t- I, I, My wife and I went to a restaurant a while back, and they told us out straight out, we, we're sorry, we can't see you because we don't have any, any waiters or anything. So the businesses are, are ready to get the engine of economics moving again, and the, instead the government is paying people to, to, not, to not work. It's a, a disastrous idea. Well, you shared with me something from, I think it was The Road to Serfdom by Hayek, uh, about uh, what's wrong with, say, I don't know, uh, poor people need butter, butter's expensive, we're going to impose a price cap on butter. Why isn't that a good idea? So in in if you're going to control the the market the price of one good that inevitably forces you to control the prices or the market for any other good. So if you try to put price controls in place for butter, dairy farmers are going to say, "Well, fine then. I'm just going to make cheese instead." So now you have to put restrictions in place on cheese in order to make sure that people get enough butter. So now you put a restriction in, on cheese and the dairy farmer says, "Well, okay, I'm going to sell milk instead." Meanwhile, people who use butter or cheese in their products, you know, cookie makers, for instance, they're you know, you're going to have they're going to have a problem because they can't get any butter, so their prices are going to go way up. Well, now you have to control the prices of cookies on the market, and and then the people who depend on cookies, like coffee shops, they can't get any cookies because there's a shortage now, so their prices are going to go way up. So now you have to control that too. So inevitably, because the market is so interconnected, any effort to control one area of the market requires you to control the entire market. That's the economic reason why socialism or government controls of any sort inevitably tend toward totalitarianism. It's not just that there's some that there's bad guys out there who take over and oh well this isn't real socialism and oh it was just because Stalin was a bad guy or it was just because Hugo Chavez was a bad guy, but otherwise, you know, it would have worked in theory. No, in theory, these kinds of government controls do not work as a matter of economic law. That's really And then how does it turn into quashing dissent and and what would seem to be non-economic behavior? Well, because necessarily people are going to turn to the black market. If they can't get the products and services that they need in the marketplace, they're going to turn to the black market, and you're going to have to control them. You're going to have to control what they say because they're going to tell each other, hey, you know, you, I know where you can get some butter off the market for cheap. You know? So you're going to have to control what they say. And that's even putting aside ideological questions and enemies of the state and the and or the, the the evil motives of bad guys who get into power and that sort of thing. Even if you put those things aside, and those are overwhelming concerns in any kind of society like that, you still tend toward totalitarianism because in order to control economic behavior, you have to control speech, 
You have to control religious freedom of people who depend on goods and services. You know, uh, if you're going to if you're going to prohibit uh, alcohol, for instance, what about Catholics who use wine in the mass, for example? So you're going to have to inevitably control every aspect of individual behavior if you are really going to have government plan your economy. So a lot of things happened during the pandemic. And, you know, to be fair, and I think you've talked about this, too, there are some pretty tough calls to be made during the pandemic. It was an unusual yeah. situation. But I've been talking about this long-form article I read about um, the pandemic was the greatest transfer of wealth from small business to large business. So many small businesses all across the country were forced to shut their doors completely or at least severely restrict while walmart target and amazon made the biggest profits they've ever made in their history selling a lot of the same stuff well this is i see two points here so the the first one is if if the the cost of doing business necessarily goes up due to circumstances beyond anyone's control such as a natural disaster some businesses are more able to absorb that cost or deal with that cost or provide people with the things they need at prices they're willing to pay more than others. And those that can't should fail economically, and those that can should succeed economically. On the other hand, when government comes in with a one-size-fits-all, top-down, we, we bureaucrats know how to run things better than everybody else does problem, then you don't allow the businesses to come up with interesting, unique, unusual ideas for solving the problem that you might not have thought of otherwise. That's the great genius of capitalism, is it allows businesses to come up with new ways of solving and addressing problems. But when the government comes in and says, no, no, every business in the, in the, in the county has to shut down at 10 p.m. or something like that, you deprive entrepreneurs of the opportunity to come up with mm. ways of, of treating their customers safely but still getting them the goods and services they need. Yeah, imagine if instead of government mandates, we'd unleash the creativity and passions of the American people to solve these problems in whatever industry, whatever business. That would have been a wonderful thing to behold. Instead, we got bureaucrats who are monomaniacally focused on COVID-19 to the exclusion of every single other human concern. Uh, Tim Sandifer, Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Uh, it's always so interesting, Tim. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a big difference between a store uh, voluntarily closing down because they say, you know, we just don't have enough customers to justify having employees here and having our lights on than the government making them close down and they didn't even have a shot at trying to see if they could serve their customers. Well, and and th- instead of what that looked like, say you got two weeks to figure this out. How are you going to keep your people safe? And then watch American creativity flourish. That would have been wonderful instead of awful. Armstrong and Getty. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.